Hello and welcome to The Long Line. We are a multidisciplinary team focused on improving the care of older patients who visit the emergency department which we work in. You can contact us via email at thelonglie@outlook.com. That's thelonglie@outlook.com, or follow us on Twitter at thelonglie1. Today's episode is on falls. My name is Ian Tyrrell and I'm an advanced clinical practitioner in Frailty and today alongside me I have Alice Holt, I'm one of the emergency medicine consultants and Erica Smith, I'm one of the ACPs in the emergency department. Okay, so when we talk about falls when people are presenting to the emergency department, Alice, what's the first question we should ask? The question I always ask is, do you remember hitting the floor? So it's an important question to ask um, to ensure that somebody hasn't had a syncopal event um, that means that they've fallen. Um, if they do remember hitting the floor, then you can go on to answer um, other certain questions as well. So Erica, what kind of things do we then, if someone does remember hitting the floor, what kind of things are we thinking of asking them? Um, so you want to know what they're doing essentially. So to try and get a good story of um, the actual incident, you want to be able to build up a picture in your mind, I always think, of what were they actually doing, where were they, what sort of objects were possibly in their way as they fell to the floor, um, did they have sort of steps that they've gone down or were they outside, what kind of surface they've gone down onto, um, and whether they knew they were falling really. So Alice, when we kind of hear the term me um, mechanical fall, what do we think? <laughs> well, to be honest, Ian, it makes me itch. Um, I really do not like the term mechanical fall because there is no such thing as a mechanical fall. And um, when you're thinking about falls in older people, um, people often say, well, they slipped and they fell and they broke their hip. And whilst I accept that environmental factors um, often do play a part um, in the reason why people have fallen, um, it's to do with um, risk factors as well. So what medication they're on, um, has that contributed to the fall? It's to do with if they've have they got peripheral neuropathy, um, have the um, postural sway, um, all, all kinds of things contribute to older people falling. Um, and there are there are things that we can do to prevent people falling. And when somebody says, oh, well, it's a mechanical fall, I often think that people then think, oh, well, there's nothing that we can do to try and mitigate that risk. And therefore, we, we don't really do these people a very good service sometimes, I think. Okay, so if we think about kind of specifically, and we're still talking about people who remember hitting the floor, say from a medical point of view, Erica, what, what kind of things are we looking out for um, symptoms prior to falling? Um, so have they felt unwell? Have they been short of breath? Have they had chest pain? Were they dizzy or lightheaded for any reason? Um, particularly if they've only just stood up and fallen over. Um, and has this happened before? I think is always a good one as well. So medically, you know, you get people that quite often will feel dizzy and fall um, and it's kind of a reoccurring thing. It's always a good thing to look out for. I always think that um, it's a good thing to ask like how they've been over the past few weeks. So if you're thinking about the geriatric giants, so, um, you know, poor mobility, um, reduced cognition, we know that older people sometimes don't present typically. So, for example, if they've got ACS, then they might not present with chest pain. They might present with another symptom. Um, and the geriatric giants, such as poor mobility or reduced cognition, they, they may present like that. So it's always a good thing to, to ask about that. Um, and another 
thing that I always routinely ask is, um, have any of their medications changed? So what medication are they on? Um, has anything been um, added or taken away? Um, and are they actually compliant with that medication? Because we know that probably about 25% um, of attendances to ED in older people specifically um, are related to adverse drug reactions. So, And I think that's something that's often omitted. Okay, so I think that wraps up quite nicely, like um, when a person does remember hitting the floor. So if someone doesn't remember hitting the floor, what should we consider and what should we be worried about? So I think in that case, you're definitely talking about people who've had a syncope for some reason. So that could be that they've had a seizure. It could be a cardiac cause. Um, it could be that they've dropped their blood pressure and um, gone to the floor. It's always good to get a collateral history. So has anybody else actually seen the incident? Um, and can they tell you a bit more about it, particularly when you're querying whether or not there was seizure activity? Anything you'd like to add, Alice? Um, yeah, so uh, like Erica said, I think the two big ones there that you don't want to miss are seizures and um, cardiac. Um, so often with cardiac syncope, you won't get any pre-syncopal symptoms. So it's literally like they're standing and then buff, they've, they've hit the floor. Um, so they won't report any pre-syncopal symptoms. Um, and then, as Erica said before, like to get a picture of what they were actually doing um, just before they fell. So um, kind of if you're thinking about if they've got postural hypotension, so have they just stood up um, or stood up maybe a minute or so um, before the fall? Um, is there a history of diabetes um, and what medication they're on? Because we know that people who are on sulfonylureas and um, insulin are much more likely to have hypoglycemic episodes and they won't get the typical symptoms that you normally get, kind of pre-syncopal typical symptoms that you'd normally get with hypoglycemia. They'll, they will literally just hit the floor. Um, and yeah, you just really the devil really really is in the detail um as it is really with when you're assessing any older person who comes to the emergency department just a really clear picture of what they were doing before they fell i think is really really useful <clears throat> and erica i think you you've already kind of alluded to this but what about those people with say kind of like um cognitive impairments or dementias that are unable to give you a history of of their fall yeah, so it's really, really important that we try and get as much information as possible. And sometimes, you know, we see this all the time, don't we, in ED, where people have come from a care home or come from their own home and the carers have found them on the floor. But even if they haven't witnessed the fall, it's important to try and get details in terms of actually where were they? Does it look like they've injured themselves against something? Is the coffee table now on the floor the wrong way up? you know, have they gone into the wardrobe door and broken it, that kind of thing, to try and get as much information as you can. So even if they haven't actually seen the person go down, it was there any clues, and particularly those that have been found in the morning, is their bed slept in? Does it look like they've gone to bed? Have they, when were they last seen? Actually, were they downstairs and potentially been there all night? Okay, so leading on to that, like, so should we be worried about if people have been laid on the floor for a long time and, and how long are, are we thinking about as a window for that? So so definitely we, we need to know how long they're on the floor for. That That's um, absolutely integral. Um, studies have shown that if an older person falls um, and they haven't tried to get up within 60 seconds, they, they won't be able to get up at all. So... Um, if they've injured themselves, so they've got a knock, for example, they're clearly not going to be able to do that. But even non-injurious falls, um, people um, who haven't got 
the muscle strength that you or I would have and um, perhaps won't be able to get themselves up off the floor. So then you've got to worry about the long lie. Um, and the long lie is important, not just not just in the context of rhabdomyolysis, which I think most people are quite hot on, but also in the context of what have they fallen against um, and have they got pressure sores or even burns, um, which is why it's important to do a really thorough examination. So a top to toe, front to back examination. Um, and we were talking about this um, before when we were thinking we're much less likely now to do log rolls than we used to because we have trauma mattresses that which are really good that we can send to people to CT on but it means that we don't always visualize um, all the injuries that patients have. When you're thinking about the long lie um, then I'm not sure that there is really a definition of an exact long lie but I would say um, anybody who's been on the floor longer than six hours um, you need to start thinking have they got rhabdomyolysis because they're at high risk of that. Um, and then it's not just a question of just doing a CK and a use and ease. It's also, you also need to dip their urine as well to see whether they've got, well, it'll come up as blood, but it's actually myoglobin. So it's important to do that as well. So we're not doing that in context of looking for a, a, a UTI. We're definitely not doing that in the context of looking for a UTI, no, Ian. Okay, just just wanted to clarify. And <laughs> um, so then, if if we think a little bit, we've we've kind of started talking about there. What are a baseline kind of investigations as a minimum we should be doing for those who have fallen? So I think in a day, the sort of minimum that we should be doing is a twelve ADCG. Um, we definitely need to be looking at a BM, and nine times out of ten, that will actually be done for us on a VBG. I think. Um, and then obviously bloods, depending on what else injury-wise you've got or history-wise you've got um, with your individual patients. So if in terms of the, the venous blood gas, what exactly are we looking for on the venous blood, blood gas? I think the venous blood gas is a is a is a brilliant thing actually. Um, it would be my desert island investigation of choice because it gives you quite a lot of in, quite a lot of um, information, particularly if you can get um, an EGFR there as well. Um, so you need to look at all of it really. But um, in the things that I would always look out for would be um, the haemoglobin. You need to look at the lactate. Um, you need to look at um, the base deficit. Um, and then if you do get an EGFR, an estimated EGFR, then that's important as well. And then obviously we're, we're going to, we've we've done a top to toe, front to back, and we've kind of assessed any injuries and we're, go, we're going to um, image any injuries we may have found. What are the indications maybe for a CT head in someone who's fallen? So I think, I think I always have, would have a low, um, a low threshold really for CTing people's heads, especially older people um, who've fallen. Um, but there's very clear, nice guidance um, on who, who requires a CT head, but doesn't the, the problem with the nice guidance is that it, it's really ta tailored towards younger people so um you look at things like episodes of vomiting um and low gcs and and we know that actually older people don't present like that because that relatively speaking they've got cerebral atrophy so there's much more room um for any injury to grow in very simple terms before um patients get the symptoms such as vomiting or reduced gcs and um, then they present very atypically um so i would have a very low threshold for CTing somebody's head um and obviously anybody who is anticoagulated um under nice guidance would require a ct head um and also, there's studies out there that would show that people who are on clopidogrel, for example, are at much higher risk of 
um, having intracerebral injury compared to those who are anticoagulated and that's not something that's in NICE guidance so it's something just to bear in mind. But on the other hand I also think it's important to be pragmatic about these things so if you've got somebody who is in a nursing home um, who has got dementia who's going to require sedation for a CT then you need to think to yourself well if we find something then what are we actually going to do and the indications what what are the indications for them being anticoagulated and could we safely stop that anticoagulation for example for three days um, and and see where we go from there because I, I think an awful lot of the time we just we do things because that's what nice guidance says when actually it's not the best thing for the patient so it's about it's about thinking about the person as a whole and treating them holistically so um th yeah that's that's my thoughts on that so that whole what matters to me rather than what is the matter with me exactly that okay so we we, we then think about we've we've done a thorough investigation of them we've we've kind of looked at all of their blood results their ecg we haven't found anything wrong with them so when where do we go from there so i i would never discharge somebody from the emergency department without getting a therapy assessment um and that's all again all to do with holistic care if you if you look at the um at the different prongs um, when you're looking at CGAs then um, so comprehensive geriatric assessments then therapy assessment plays a really really big part in that um, so my next step once I've once I've seen a patient with a fall I've done the investigations I'm satisfied that there's not um, a medical reason that they need to come in hospital for and that and they haven't got any injuries that they need to come in hospital for my, my next step would be to get on the telephone to therapies <laughs> Okay, and I think I'll t I'll take over and speak a little bit about this now, seeing as seeing as it's my remit. Um, so when we're looking at mobility, I think it's important that we 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 know what someone was like pre prior to them coming in, irrespective of whether or not they've got an injury. We have to be able to see what their mobility is like and actually look at, at, at potentially precursors for falls. So a lot of people may have let uh, an unknown uh, leg length discrepancy. They may have a foot drop that hasn't been um, identified before. Or they may have some sort of neurological condition that may inhibit them from being able to use a mobility aid. So again, we're getting that good collateral history and we're making sure that they were able to mobilize to a sufficient level. Um, I suppose one thing we have to think about a little bit is um, those patients who say maybe have fractures um, that don't need to be managed orthopedically, but actually can still they can still return home, but actually may cause a big impact on their lives. So what I'm thinking of is, is clavicle fractures, wrist fractures, and also kind of pubic rami fractures that very painful injuries. So one of the key things will be kind of making sure they have appropriate analgesia. So Eric, what types of appropriate analgesia do we think about discharging someone from ED with? Um, so certainly, you know, for those painful injuries, like you've mentioned, um, you want your regular paracetamol. But then I think on top of that, I generally think about Oromorph rather than codeine. Um, just because there's less side effects with the oromorph, it's normally well tolerated um, and you can obviously titrate the dose. So if they only need a small dose, you can do that quite easily. 
Um, but, you know, you need enough analgesia that the patient is going to be able to maintain their activity and be safe at home. So it's no good making them comfortable in ED and then sending them home with just some paracetamol and they're not going to be able to move. They'll just end up coming back. I think that's something that I found uh, uh, over the years is that we're really quite good at giving people enough to make them float to, around the emergency department, but then they come they come back two days later because they haven't been able to or we haven't considered that. And um, I think another thing we have to look at, not just in terms of mobility and their ability to kind of manage their ADLs in terms of it's not just a physiotherapy assessment, but a, an occupational therapy assessment. And a lot of places have kind of separate services, but where we work, we have an integrated role. Um, so making sure that people are able to do the things that they need to do. So to be able to get out of bed, to be able to get on and off the toilet safely, to be able to wash and dress themselves. And if not, then we need to look at having the appropriate support in place. Um, in the community so um, I suppose we, we look at what they're um, getting it right first time a national report on it, on kind of management of frailty shows and they, they say that most departments should have a, a, a holistic team at the front door trying to bring together both health therapy and social care to try and make sure that we can discharge people safely from the department with the appropriate care support in the community um, I suppose the other thing we have to think about is kind of um, risk of falls and how do we how can we minimise or mitigate the risk of falls? I think I think that's a it's a big question um, and there's there's lots of there's lots of different answers to that. Um, if you look at the studies, um, then the studies would suggest that you need to do a comprehensive medication review um, and look at what medications um, patients are on. Because if you think about it, then a lot of patients are on antihypertensive medications. Um, and then if you frailty score these patients and say if they come up um, with a clinical frailty score of seven, eight or nine, um, then the, they're on the antihypertensive to try and prevent an event happening in the next 10 years um, when actually they're, they're not going to be here in the next 10 years. So they're getting all the side effects from those medications, but actually none of the benefits. So the first thing that I would do would be I'd do a very comprehensive medication review. Um, and you can do that um, using different tools. So you can use the stop-start criteria. You can use the beers criteria. Or another quite simple one to do um, is to look at the anticholinergic burden. So you can do that on the ACB calculator that's online. So that's that's one thing I'd do. Um, the second thing that I would do is obviously you've you've had a comprehensive therapy assessment. Um, so to look at the environment in which they live and can you identify anything that you can change to help um, your patient in, in that respect. Um, and then studies suggest that the one thing that the one thing that really, really works when you're thinking about um, trying to prevent falls um, is muscle strengthening. Um, therapy. So if you talk to your patients, um, then you can try and advise that they do some kind of exercises to try and strengthen their muscles. And that actually works in preventing falls. Um, it's the it's the biggest thing that actually works in preventing falls. Things like Tai Chi um, work really, really well. Um, so it's 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 a whole person approach. It isn't just one thing. Um, but those are those are the three big things that I would always think about and the other uh, the other thing that's in the prong of the medication review is if you have got somebody with a fracture um, then you need you need to be thinking about fragility fractures so 
can we do anything to prevent fragility fractures? And yes, we can. So anybody who's in a care home should be put on vitamin D. They all should be taking vitamin D. Um, and then anybody over the age of, any woman over the age of 75 um, who's had a fragility fracture should be started on a bisphosphonate. Um, and any other patient who's got a fragility fracture then needs to, usually through fracture clinic, have FRAC scoring. And then depending on that, they'll have a DEXA scan. And depending on whether that shows whether they're osteoporotic or not, then they can be started on a bisphosphonate. And we know that those patients who are started on bisphosphonates will, you can prevent refracturate um, over three years by about 50%. So it's a big thing. I think w one thing I'd like to add about kind of like um, the risk of falling or the fear of falling. Um, often what we are faced, we're faced with people who have a, got a cognitive impairment in their own environment and their family are very worried about them falling if they've had one or a number of falls. I think, again, that holistic approach and that whole person approach is making sure we haven't found a cause for it and actually making sure that they're safe in their own environment is important. But those kind of people with a cognitive impairment are likely to fall in whatever environment they in they're in. So often the grass we say that the grass is often greener on the other side. But placing these patients in and in twenty four hour care direct from the emergency department actually will lessen their life expectancy and actually potentially because of an unfamiliar surroundings or unfamiliar environment may actually cause them more harm than good. So we have to take a measured approach and actually take some measure of risk in, in, in ensuring that these patients are safe. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think often people think, oh, well, we'll bring them into hospital and everything will, will be okay. And actually, I I think that we need to turn that thinking on its head. So I, I think also it's for us as clinicians, um, we sat here, we sit here as as what we claim to be frailty experts and for us actually sending people home is 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 a lot easier than admitting them but i think if you turn that onto the head for most emergency care clinicians it's a lot more easy it's easier to admit someone than to discharge them home and um, so it's about encouraging people that if they have done the holistic assessments i.e they have done all they have they know exactly why the person has fallen or have a good guess to guess to be able to say that this is a reasonable cause of their falls they know medically they are stable they know they've had a holistic assessment from a therapist and they know that they have the adequate support coming going into them at home then actually that should encourage them to make those decisions but i think like many clinicians it's 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 miles on the clock and patient miles that helps us to be able to make these decisions so it's about kind of I suppose us as frailty experts giving our expertise to the more junior members of our, our team to be able to support them in making those those more difficult decisions. Thank you for listening to The Long Light. We hope you have found today's episode informative and enjoyable. If you would like to contact us, please email thelonglie at outlook.com. And please follow us on Twitter for all the latest news. Our handle is thelonglie1.